1 John, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 6 and read to verse 13. Next week will be our, our concluding message from uh, this wonderful pastoral letter from John to the churches. John, the oldest apostle, the, the one who lived and outlasted, who was the beloved friend of Jesus and wants to strengthen the church in an age where um, people were causing also asking all sorts of questions. Questions aren't bad, but we're sowing seeds of doubt and saying, what actually does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a person of faith, to be spiritual? One John has so many important things to speak about. So these verses, verse 6 from chapter 5 onwards, be on the screen and also if you have it to hand do follow along. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him, sorry, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus, would you help us by your spirit to, to understand, to grasp, to take hold of, to let this truth speak into the now and equip us for the next. In Jesus' name, amen. John is an amazing witness to Jesus. At the end of life, his faithfulness through many days, and John has walked as a disciple, a follower, a friend of Jesus, and carries the label as apostle. Throughout every year of his life, he has realized that God is faithful. No turning back. I don't know if you've uh, been following the news this week. You may try and avoid it uh, at the moment. But even on the edge of your periphery, perhaps you are aware of two uh, trials that are going on in court. I'm sure there's many more. One is to do uh, in North America and the, the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. And there seems to be a little bit of a frenzy about all that is being presented in court. The witnesses, the circumstances of establishing what happened in that case. And also there was a trial in London and uh, to do with the, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan, and with the Daily Mail. Does that ring any bell? I'm not going to go into that. But we're still in a case where 
to establish what has happened, there comes to be a place and a time that the witnesses are gathered, they share their testimony in the court of law in order that the evidence is brought forward, plain to see, in order to establish truth. John, in this part of his letter, indeed the whole of this pastoral epistle, has been wanting to draw down and point people to Jesus wonderfully and to establish the credibility of what it means to be children of God that we can be sure and certain to hold definitely whatever happens in each year of life, each moment by moment, to be assured that our faith is well-founded, to be inspired in following. Evidence and testimony. Scripture is full of evidence and testimony. I don't know if you know that. It's not just a kind of wishful thinking once upon a time in a land of fairy tale. It is the true account of things that did happen. It's amazing, modern archaeology and all that kind of thing of discovery, for a long time thought, well, we can't be too sure of the credibility of these texts. And yet, if you have your eye on these things again and again, suddenly new discoveries have made about the places that Jesus went to and miracles happened, that the, the events of the Old Testament that many have thought, well, that just seems a little bit too much to believe. The places, the cities, the events have been ascertained. One such of those was about Pontius Pilate. He is a, a character that crops up in the Easter story. Obviously, he was the, uh, the procreator, the, the kind of the one who would, uh, the governor, Roman governor of Judea under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then for a long time, people questioned, said, is this Pontius Pilate a real person? We don't have any evidence. Yet in 1961, archaeologists discovered a plaque fragment in um, a place called Caesarea Maritima, an ancient city on the edge of the Mediterranean of Israel. And the plaque, written in Latin and embedded upon the steps of the amphitheater, had this inscription. Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Tiberius from 14 to 37 AD. In other words, those whose job it is to dig and sift and find love to search through these kind of archaeological digs. Find corroboration, evidence testifies to the truth of what we read. Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, mentions Pontius Pilate in one of his well-known texts. He writes, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Why do I measure, me mention uh, this character? not read in the story. Well, the reason being is I want to point to what John is establishing of evidence, testimony, witness. When I was 19, kind of very into science, hostile to the things of faith, I thought it was wishy-washy, make-believe, incredible in the truest sense of that word, uncredible. I came to realize that the evidence that the scriptures contain is 
actually really profound and overwhelming. Given a fair shot, given uh, a chance to relook at it with not dispassionate, but actually without coming to it with an agenda of saying, I don't want to believe this is true. But you're allowing it to speak. There are some great books if you wanted to pursue this. There's, there's a book called The Case for Christ, sets out really clearly why we can trust in about Jesus, the historical figure, or evidence that demands a verdict, or a, a short little pamphlet, a little bit uh, older now, but who moved the stone? Great stuff to establish that this isn't fictional, make-believe, wishy-washy, but rooted, established, demonstrably in history. It's not fake news, it's great news. This passage that we have read and are attending to this, uh, this morning is also a passage about evidence towards perhaps a different goal than demonstrating that Jesus was truly historical and lived and died just as the scriptures direct us towards. He wants John in this case to, to help us as followers, as disciples, women and men and young people, those who are old in the faith and just starting out, to establish evidence and testimony for a particular goal. As John was one of the eyewitnesses of the life and the passion and the resurrection of Jesus, the one who was there on that first Sunday when the, tomb was, the stone was rolled away from the tomb, who could see the grave clothes and met risen Jesus. This John, the last living apostle, would testify and write to the churches in the New Testament world that there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore God exists, but wants us to also be sure of our faith. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this, says, Christianity puts forth lofty claims. Yes, it does. The magnitude and scope of the Christian claim is universal, all-encompassing. Modern phrases, it's a meta-narrative. But points and says that to justify such high claims, the gospel ought to produce strong evidence. And it does. It doesn't lack for external evidences. These are abundant. So in these uh, short verses that we have read, it's easy to imagine the courtroom setting of John bringing forth the witnesses to testify. That word, testimony, or testify, or to give testimony, occurs no less than 10 times in these short verses. John is wanting to, to demonstrate to us to have confidence in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 10 times draws upon this word. He calls upon six witnesses or six pieces of evidence to, to help us make up our mind to be sure of this declaration that Jesus is of Nazareth and is the Son of God who gives eternal life to everyone who trusts him, to be sure. And these six witnesses have different but complementary aspects, and they build a powerful case. So let's hear what these six are. And I hope there's an open-mindedness, but also a growing confidence in what you hear. Verses 6 to 8, this little phrase, 
This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. There's a witness about the baptism of Jesus. The young people are hearing about John the Baptist, and he'll grow up and uh, be the one to baptize Jesus. The word water in these verses occurs four times. There's a question mark about what does it mean. Some see water as a reference to birth, birthing, you know, the waters break. Obviously that Jesus was truly born a human being. We celebrate that in a couple of weeks at Christmas. The incarnation is genuinely fully God and fully human. That The scriptures again testify that Jesus bled that he cried, that he would eat, that he grew tired. Fully human. Other people point to this reference that John is making about water. Maybe that's a reference to when the spear pierced his side and and water flowed out. Or perhaps towards the sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, water and blood. Again, Calvin and Luther the great thinkers in the history of the church would think it's that, the water of of baptism and the blood of of the Lord's Supper. Far be it from me to say Luther and Calvin are wrong. Wouldn't necessarily presume. And yet I don't think that is quite what John is driving at. I think those other interpretations are helpful and supportive of them, and yet I think there's something a little bit more that John is pointing towards here. And I think it is that it's about his baptism. Jesus, before his ministry unfolded, was baptized. Why is this important? At the baptism, as Jesus rose up from the waters, John lifted him up. It says, we're told in in the Gospels, that the heavens opened and the voice of the Father said, this is my son, my beloved son, and the Spirit descended in the form like a dove. Now, in the early church, after, uh, as, as uh, John was still alive, there had begun to be some heresies. There had begun to be this question mark about what it meant to trust in Jesus. Was he fully human? Well, probably, yeah, they all understood that. They could remember the man. People had ate with, eaten with him and, and all that. The question that really began to challenge them was, What about his deity? And obviously that's a key thing for us as believers, that he is fully God and fully human. But others had started to say, well, he he was adopted to be divine at either his baptism, because that's when the Spirit descended, and that's when he became truly the divine man. One of the early heretics, Corinthus, said, whereas Jesus did his miracles on earth, He was inspired by the Spirit, and yet the Spirit abandoned him at the cross, left him, and he died just as a broken human being. The reason for that is because it's really hard to grasp God dying. It's really hard to get your head around the fact that God would become so vulnerable in the person of Jesus that he should die upon a cross. Because it looks like Rome has won. It looks like God has failed. 
how can that be? And so the thoughts went, well, he was adopted into divinity at baptism and, and the Spirit left him at the crucifixion and therefore God doesn't suffer. God in all his power and might, how can that be that he should be so weak and vulnerable? Yet it's precisely in that truth is the wonder and the power of the gospel. I need not particularly underline, but obviously baptism is so, so important in the gospel stories. In every one of the four gospels, we find and hear of how Jesus came through the water of baptism. And from that point begins his public ministry. John 3, after Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there the voice from heaven came, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. There's resonances of Psalm 2, of the Father's declaration of sonship, and of Isaiah 42 about the servant songs of Jesus being the suffering servant. This profound moment when Jesus is baptized. Why is that important in this evidence John draws on? He's saying that Jesus is like us, one of us, has become one of us. Of course he wasn't sinful, he was sinless. He didn't belong in that water of John, of baptism for repentance. There was nothing for him to repent of. But Jesus says, I embrace this because I am one of you, with you. I am in solidarity with you, in entire unity with you as a human race, in order that you should be rescued and saved. A great theologian of the early church said, that which he did not assume he could not save. The baptism is really important. The first piece of evidence John points to, that Jesus isn't just simply a man. He is the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean? If you come to this table and think, I'm not welcome because you kind of carry a guilt or a, God can't love me. God can't want me. This demonstrates you are welcome. He loves you. You are made, he has made the way to restore your life. Without Jesus, we are abandoned with him we find home he then speaks about the witness of the crucifixion and these references to blood occurs again three times water four times three times a reference to blood the work of, of Jesus the Savior demonstrated he has come amongst us as one of us, as a truly human being at the baptism. And it is finished, the work that he came to accomplish on and through his death on the cross. Jesus himself uttered it as one of his final words. It is finished. What is finished? to make atonement, to make the rescue plan, to bring about full forgiveness, complete forgiveness, and the inauguration of the reign and rule of 
God. That death is vanquished. That Satan is defeated. It is finished. Even the skeptic. Thank you. Even the skeptic at the foot of the cross. The Roman centurion proclaimed. This man really was God's son. But John is wanting to tell us. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't some sort of special agent who was adopted at his baptism and abandoned at the cross. That he was and is always from the moment that he bursts into our world through the nativity story, right through his death and into his resurrection. It's the eternal son of God who enters into our world, into our time, into our space and died for us. Brings atonement. That his death, as we're told in John, most wonderfully in the gospel, isn't an accident, isn't the conspiracy of the powers that be, but he chose and destined himself. He set his face to this event. It wasn't as though he was a, a, a victim just plucked out at random, but it was the divine saving plan. God's love for us to rescue us. King of heaven, come down. God was fully embodied in his son, Jesus Christ, and reconciles the world to himself. Praise his name. Second witness from the crucifixion. The third here that John would bring into this court of law to say, this is the evidence, this is, this is the testimony I want you to hear, is about the witness of the Holy Spirit. We hear it in these verses. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, verse 6. Referenced three times, again in these verses. And says that the Spirit is this consistent and continuous witness that Jesus is the Messiah. The Spirit is truth. That we can't have a spirituality, a true spirituality that doesn't lead us to Jesus. Any spirituality that leads us away from Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. It's a distortion, an untruth, a deception, fakery. The Apostle John, the friend of Jesus, who saw and lived it out right through his life, points us to this fact. The Spirit is truth and the Spirit leads us to Jesus. It would be a contradiction and not the Spirit to lead us anywhere else. Jesus himself said this, didn't he? In John 15, 26, when the counselor, the Holy Spirit comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So often uh, as we talk about Jesus and, and that choice comes in people's minds, you often hear about people talking about their heart quickens. They get a faster beating in their heart or, or there's something about a penny dropping or uh, of seeing clearly. Of Suddenly it all begins to make sense. I can see Jesus clearly. I understand. That's the Spirit at work in your life. The Spirit who is involved utterly in the conception of Jesus, of an, the announcement, the presence of God right through uh, the the nativity story of right through uh, Jesus' life and ministry, 
even onwards in the work and the acts of the early church. The spirit at work calling people to trust and believe, to repent and accept and follow Jesus. That's the will of the Father. This threefold witness is really important. Of the water, baptism, blood, the cross, and the spirit agreed. Do you remember in the Old Testament there was this sort of Provision made for when people had to give evidence and, and the weight of testimony that would be brought. And said that one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Corroboration. For John, he's, he's saying all three of these are in agreement that this Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's a bit like saying the Spirit is like a compass. It always points to north. The Spirit always points and leads us to Jesus. Fourthly, one of the strongest witnesses is the witness of the Father. Imagine this evidence that is being brought. John says, listen to the witness of the Father himself, God Almighty. The testimony of the Father resounds again and again in verses 9 to 10. In some senses, John has said these three things already, these three witnesses have been building up to this one most spectacular witness. In the affairs of everyday life, we accept the witnesses of people, two or three. But now how much more God himself. But the testimony of the Father is indeed superior in source and status and significance than any human being. More reliable and more trustworthy. Why? Because God the Father does not lie. For me, this was important. Still is. In a few weeks, we'll hear carols and we will read some readings about what? About the promised Messiah. The long hoped for one. The one that prophets upon prophets would speak about when and how and where and what the nature and character and the function of how he'll die and what he'll accomplish and what the Messiah will achieve in the manner of his death as well as his birth. Peppering the Old Testament, saying this will happen. And it comes to pass. Centuries is codified, written centuries before it came to be. It's there as an established record. God does not lie. He's announced it. The God, the Father, is entirely trustworthy and faithful and entirely true, as is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, of course. But this is the testimony of the Father, that he gives it about his Son. John is saying that Jesus' baptism, his crucifixion, that of the Holy Spirit pointing always to Jesus is about the Son, Jesus. That God is not giving any other testimony according to anybody else in the entire sweep of human history. It all points in the Father's testimony to his beloved Son, the singular and the unique 
the pivot of history, implicitly draws us towards this sense of what is our response to him? Neutrality in decision isn't really an option. To disbelieve the father is to say he's a liar. Verse 10 makes this point. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever doesn't believe God has made him out to be a liar because they don't believe God. It's quite a bold thing to say. And the reason John can write it as such is because the Father tells the truth. Spurgeon again. God is to be believed if all men contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. One word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men or people, whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity. God's word is against them all, for he knows infallibly. Jesus in John's gospel, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. Fifthly, we're getting there. The witness of our conversion. If we need anything else of these six testimonies, those four are massive. But John moves and points us to this. He ties together all those outward aspects, those things that are demonstrable and evidential, and we can draw strength and come from them. They are, uh, pen, uh, they are kind of signposts in history. As we can be sure of these things, as we can be sure of anything. And then points to the inward, to the inner conviction within ourselves. The internal witness of faith and belief confirms that we are his children, children of God. And assures us of this gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. This internal testimony. Remember in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the outward utterance and believe in your heart, both required, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes in the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. The outward truth has to become an inner faith, personal. Not just private, because we bear witness ourselves. But both are required, and John draws us to that and says, you know, from the outward and the demonstrable and this lived experience in history of Jesus Christ, and now as you trust in him, that change from within. And he points lastly, the sixth witness brought in for your consideration to listen to. It says, bear and listen to the witness of eternal life. It testifies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's fascinating, this witness. The witness to eternal life. He's not here saying, well, you've not experienced this. It's just till you die. You don't get any glimpse of that until later on. That's not what eternal life is about. Having life is so essential to John that he mentions the Son and life five times in these three verses. Eternal life 
obviously does have a future dynamic, an eternal aspect. But eternal life also means God kind of life now. That becoming a follower of Jesus, trusting in the Son of God, of stepping out in faith, following his way, actually is the beginning of eternal life. That we receive that, we take hold of that gift of Jesus that God has given and we enter into eternal life. This is the gift of abundant life to us, not reserved on a shelf for future tense or passing glory, but lived and embodied and experienced by us now. To have the Son is to have life. Not to have the Son means you haven't got life. Having the Son of God equals life. Not having the Son of God equals spiritual death. get it. The invitation. Jesus says, enter through me. I'm the gate. Come to me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. He focuses Jesus. John is reminding the church and reminding us as we come to this table, it's Jesus-centered. All about him. That spirituality is Jesus' spirituality. And that it is life. I pray you can remember and know that power of God in your life already. This meal about him who died for us, you, me, and has risen six witnesses, evidence and testimony. Pray in this eating and drinking and this walking forth from here. Choose life as you choose Jesus. Let's pray.